You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Today's guest on Max's Island is Vicky Barry. Welcome to the island, Vicky. Hi, Tony. It's great to be here. Vicky, when we have visitors to the island, we like to hear their story about either the time when they did something for themselves or it was that time when they did something that others said you couldn't or even that time when something happened to you that just changed it all. The microphone's yours. What's your story today? Well, I'm going to talk about the very thing that did change my life. So one of the things I like to do is I like to talk about death and dying, which is a subject that most people feel very uncomfortable talking about. And more than that, I actually like to help people plan for the end of life. And this all happened. I found my purpose by accident in the truest sense of the word. I was 17, had just finished my school exams, celebrating, you know, that part of my life, ready to venture out into the world. I already had a job lined up. And on my way home from a party, I actually don't make it home. I find myself in hospital with burns to 20% of my body with a huge gash in my uh, scalp where I'd hit the back window and broken it. And that was the only way that my friend managed to get me out of the vehicle. So really, I was just seconds away from death. The car exploded. And then nine days later, my dad's admitted to hospital and diagnosed with terminal cancer. So here we are spending his last Christmas in hospital together. And then he died a year later on exactly the same day that I had my accident. That's incredible coincidence. (laughs) Absolutely. And then during that year, my friend, the one who got me clear of the vehicle, was actually killed on a motorbike accident on his way home from work. So having to confront my own mortality and the loss of my dad and my friend had a huge impact. It made me realise just how fragile, how finite and how precious life really is. So you can imagine at such a young age, having confronting those experiences was actually very profound and that whole loss, grief, death, dying had a huge impact. Vicky, was that something that you had experienced 
prior to those those events? And was it something that your family were freely open to talking about? Well, it's interesting because we grew up in the country. So we'd nursed, for example, a young lamb that had been caught in a flood and it didn't survive. So I was absolutely very familiar with death and that didn't really bother me at all. Like that's part of life, right? Just like the head and tail are the flip side of a coin, birth and death are the flip side of life. So the actual idea of death and dying didn't bother me so much, but the whole how we deal with death and dying really bothers me a lot. I just feel we need to do that a whole lot better. And I'll give you what happened with, and I, and on that though, I don't have any, like my grandparents, parents, all that generation and beyond have died. So we're not long livers. My dad was 58 when he died and my mum was 66. And if you go fast forward 16 years, my mum, we were at a deathbed once again, but this time my mother was faced with amputation of both legs. So the decisions that you're called upon to make as a family, if you haven't talked about it, uh, can, as we all know, creates a lot of tension and raw emotion and, you know, you're grieving the whole emotional aspects of death and dying get in the way of making rational decisions just when you have to make them if you haven't prepared or planned for it ahead of time. And I'll give you an example. When this really showed up for me was Dad had died and the first phone call my mother got was from the hospital to ask if they could have his eyes. Well, she just went ballistic, like leave him intact. It's enough that he's just died sort of thing. Clearly they couldn't have his other organs because he had cancer. They weren't any good to them. But I imagine that standard protocol, they want the tissue or the eyes themselves, I'm not sure. Anyway, then we had the funeral director come to the home and we had to make plans for Dad's funeral. And immediately my mother, uh, when we were asked, well, how do we want the body disposed? Do we want, you know, burial or cremation? Mum immediately said cremation. And there were five children, my cousin, who's actually Polish, and my mother. And out of the seven of us, I said, well, I don't think that's right. Dad was Polish. He was a World War II veteran. You know, he'd fought to defend his country and really the rest of Europe. And he was proud of all of those things. And he was Catholic. And I know we're not practising Catholics, but Dad certainly was. And I know that he often, in jest, would talk about being buried in a suit. So Mum then, that really set the cat among the pigeons. And it was so horrible. I can't even begin to tell you what that was like. And in the end... She said, well, you go ahead and organise it then. And here I am still in my compression suit from my accident with my Polish cousin and we started making plans. But fortunately, we did engage the whole family and we had a beautiful graveside service in the return serviceman section of the Lawn Cemetery with the Polish community there playing the last post. And I think it really was a nice send-off for Dad that, would have honoured the person that he was and the things that really were important for him. Vicky, that's really interesting because you actually landed at a what sounds to be a, a really beautiful space, but that could have been made so much easier with preparation and previous understanding of, of how somebody wanted to be farewelled from this life. 
Absolutely. And so where that really came to life for me was when I became a single parent in the mid-90s with a five-year-old and a five-month-old. And my concern was what would happen to them if anything happened to me without my parents, siblings living many, many miles away. And whilst I had a very warm relationship with their dad still in a very supporting family, I was worried about would they lose connection with my family. They didn't really have an established connection with my family, actually. And then things about that were important for me, like how I want to die and what would that look like and how would I want to be buried. And I do want a natural burial. So it was interesting because... All of a sudden, I'm a very pragmatic person. I like to be organised, and it was part of being the responsible parent, I think, that brought me to that place. But I started to document all the things so that in the event that I died, my executor and others around me could easily pick up and settle my estate, plan my funeral, get things done, and um, all of those sort of things. So I actually was probably one of the very first people to ever complete an advanced health directive in WA. And then I used to find myself at Chipper's funerals on a Friday afternoon. They had a resource centre. And this is before the days of the internet, and the, well, not before, but before the explosion of the internet and mobile devices. So I found myself at Chipper's resource centre, which was open to the public, and they had all these sector journals on how they, on death dying and, you know, treating the dead body and all of that sort of stuff. Well, that really, really opened my eyes because once I was looking at embalming and the fluids and all the toxic chemicals they pump into your body and inner cosmetics, like, do you want to be suntanned or rosy cheeks? So they actually colour the embalming fluid to make you look good. And I get that, like, you know, looking good, but To me, I go, actually, I think my vanity ends the day that I die or probably some time before that. I'm not so (laughs) worried about the inner cosmetics after death. And more than that, um, the natural burial movement was just getting started in the UK. We hadn't heard anything about that here in WA. And in fact, to this day, we're still one of the only states in Australia where you can't get a shroud-only natural burial. If you're a Muslim, you can, but um, because that's their practice, their funeral practice. But for the rest of us, we're still waiting. Yes, you can have cardboard coffins and all of those eco-friendly options, but the point is I don't want to be in a box. I never want to be in a box. That's just not good for me. That doesn't work for me. I know I want to my body to dispose quickly, naturally, which is what it's meant to do after death and return all that goodness back to Mother Earth. And I look at it simply like this. I was delivered and born naturally and washed and put in a little ruggy and given to my mum. And when I die, I just simply want to be washed, wrapped and put into Mother Earth. So that for me completes my, my life circle. Vicky, I've got so many questions. and <laughs> <laughs> So let's start with, one and something you mentioned a little while back and the distinction between death and dying. So obviously preparation for death is around how you will leave this earth, whether you'll be cremated, whether you'll be buried, how that process occurs. But what about the dying part of it leading up to your death? In your planning, do you see that that's equally important? Absolutely. In fact, probably more important because 
the reality is we're all living longer and we're actually dying longer. So I call this the slow death movement because we now have all these lovely treatments, technology, all the other interventions, and there's many of them. And we can prolong the life of anyone, really. You can be left on a ventilator. You know, people we know are resuscitated. And I think people are not afraid of dying. What they're afraid of is that loss of um, independence, the loss of control, the loss of their capacity, the burden on family, the loss of autonomy, leaving loved ones behind. I mean, you know, the annihilation of self, all that existential stuff that goes on. So there's a lot going on for people. And I think for me, in confronting my mortality, what that's made me do is actually dig really deep. I've had to look at my values, my beliefs, and the things that really matter to me. And how would I reflect that? And what choices would I make if I were, and you've got a scenario plan, like if I had a stroke, if I got cancer, if I got dementia, what are the possible endings I might have? Because most of us now are living well into our 80s. In fact, I think the last census, there were over 4,000 people over 100 years of age. You know, I hope I don't live till I'm 100, Tony. I do not want to be aged and frail in a nursing home. That just does not, you know, I really hope. And for me, an option would be if I got really, really unwell, I would probably choose something like voluntarily stopping eating and drinking. And that is absolutely a valid choice to make if you choose to. And it must be upheld. But if I'm not talking about this or telling people what's going to work for me and what I really value, then how are they going to know? So what most of us do is we leave all that decision-making to the professionals. And let me say that the professionals, doctors, will not choose the treatment and care choices that you that they administer. It's very well evidenced and documented. Most doctors will not choose the treatment options they're giving their patients. So... And they're not even comfortable or good about talk, but good talking about this stuff. So for me, um, we have a responsibility to ourselves to, to exercise control and choice, and we can, but we need to be empowered and supported and informed to make those decisions. Knowledge is absolutely power. And then we absolutely need to get informed. And then if we want that dignity and for the sake of our family and to spare them some of the um, burden, then let's make it easy for them. And the one way you can absolutely do that is do all your advanced care planning, thinking ahead. So that's the sort of work I like to do with people to help them actually get there and do it. Because I've noticed when we were doing advanced care planning workshops and giving people a whole heap of information, that was one thing, they're getting the information but then there's this knowing, doing gap. They're still averse to actually getting the stuff done because often they don't know where to start. They don't know what's important. They don't know how to prioritise the task because there is a bit to do. And certainly you're not going to get it all done at once. You have to do it little bit by little bit. So like what I like to do is break it down into little bite-sized pieces for people and just help them get to where they want to be, like, look at what that might be for them. And it is so everyone's circumstances, personal, family, medical, health, all of those things are so different. 
it's absolutely not a one-size-fits-all. What specific things, you've talked about advanced care planning and some of the workshops that you've been doing, but I know that you've done some other things around this concept of, of planning for your death or at least even just talking about death and dying. Tell me about the death cafes. Yes, so the um, I've been convening the Perth Death, death Cafe since 2013 and that movement started back in the UK in 2011 by a guy called John Underwood. And he absolutely wanted to bring death and dying into the public space. So very simply, a death cafe is just hosting a community-based group discussion in a public space. So at a cafe is perfect over a cup of coffee, cup of tea, and just being able to chat in public about death and dying. And that's simply all that it is. And the sad thing is John actually died um, unexpectedly of a very um, short illness with lymphocytic leukaemia. And that was a few years ago now, but his mother and wife still continue the movement. And there's thousands of them happening all over the world as we speak. I'm interested to know what people talk about. Do they become very personal in those discussions or do they just talk generally? It's very general. So there is no agenda. So, and it's certainly not a place where you would come if you had just experienced a loss or someone had died. It's really a place to come to, to be comfortable, talk anything about death and dying. And actually it was some of the, I'll give you a couple of, uh, recall a couple of uh, experiences I've had in one session. And I usually open, I set the ground rules, just, you know, what it is and what it isn't sort of thing, just so people can get a bit of a sense of the scope of what is good to talk about. And then one, and then I open it because it's about supporting others to have the conversation. And this one particular time, this woman talked about that her husband had died on a Friday evening, expected, but he had donated his body to the School of Anatomy. And, of course, they're not open on a Friday night, are they? So then she's thought of thinking, well, what do I do with the body? Like, what am I able to do? So she didn't want to call a, a funeral director right away because she knew then the body would be sort of it's a little bit out of your control once it goes there in that sense so she decided she would just stay with the body for a, a couple of days and she did seek advice in between obviously and that's actually okay to do that you can actually keep the body of a loved one at home for up to three to five days provided that the body's kept cool and all of those things but that's fine to do that and um, so then on the Monday, the body was able to be transported to the School of Anatomy. And the other thing is, if you're going to donate your body, you need to have a plan B and a C because they don't take every body. If you're obese or have certain medical conditions at the time of death, your body may not be actually in a good state for them to actually make use of the body. So, and the other thing is a lot of people think I'll donate my body to the school because, you know, I don't have to pay for a funeral and all those other things. They think it's a cheap way out. Well, that's not the right reason to be choosing to do that, really. 
That's incredible that uh, you can keep a body in your home for a period of time after death. I'm sure that most people most wouldn't people know that. Know you that. See? Exactly, and this is the whole thing. Most people don't know what they don't know, and it's the richness of these experiences and discussions and where people start talking about their experiences and what's important for them, and we don't judge that. Like, it is not a place to be judged, and everybody's got their own views, and we respect that, and it's really nice when I can remember one night, I often have them at the Bodhi Tree in Mount Hawthorne, and they have a hawker's market over the road on a Friday some nights and you'll get people from all sorts of like Spanish, German, different cultural backgrounds, Indian. And the when you start getting that diversity in the group, it really, um, the conversation just goes into another realm really. It's really lovely. Cultural influences are an interesting thing in our life and you mentioned the ability to be buried in a shroud and that that is not available to most people yet um, it is available to certain religions that adds another layer of complexity where there's actually probably rules and regulations about what you can and can't do when it comes to planning for you know your your, your burial or your cremation do you find that that's difficult to talk about with some people where culturally they're unable to do things in Australia that they would be able to do from their original um, homeland? That's an interesting question. I mean, if you think about the Indian culture, for example, and, you know, they create pyres and have very public, you know, disposing of the body, the family go and build the pyre and all of those sort of things. Clearly you can't do that here and you certainly can't do that um, bury people even in your backyard there are regulations around that in certain acreage and you need permission. And I find this really interesting. If you want something different than what's prescribed by the Act and the regulations and bylaws, you can't seek permission in advance. You have to, you can only seek permission once a person has actually died. And I'm going, well, what good is that? Yeah. You don't have any time to play. And I, and I don't know if they do that on purpose or what, but it's certainly limits your options when the you know the law is so prescriptive in that sense and let me say they've been wanting to they've been the the cemeteries act was scheduled for review back in 2007 and to this day it hasn't happened and I'm pretty sure most of them again because we're not comfortable talking about death and dying no one's raising those matters and it goes under the radar and really the Cemeteries Board is a big cash cow. Um, they've got a lot of money in reserve because people prepay, like families, for vaults and other things. There's a lot of money held in advance. I've got a friend who paid for her plot at Pinaroo uh, when she got divorced many years ago. And guess what? 25-year lease, she had to repay that for that plot after it expired. So what cost her about $600 in the beginning cost her over two and a half thousand dollars to renew and she's not dead yet mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's all these quirky things and again the stuff that you don't know about yeah it makes it really interesting I had a little bit of a giggle to myself when you're talking about approvals that you would need if you wanted to do something outside the act and um, if anybody's tried to you know 
have a pergola or an extension done to their house and going through local council. Can you imagine what it would be like <laughs> confronting them with a request about how you want to um, dispose of a body on your premises or something like that? Uh, it just wouldn't work. Yeah. So just in closing, what's happening at the moment for you and your personal journey, where's that at at the moment with regard planning for your death and the death yep. of other family members? Okay, so firstly, I set up a little not-for-profit a couple of years ago with people like-minded people like myself because we wanted to establish a, a space, if you like, a hub where people could come and actually have the conversations and we could support them to start planning and getting all this stuff together. So we set up a little organisation called Your Departure Lounge and what we quickly discovered, we've piloted it and people really loved it. And we, um, and for example, uh, we have tools so they can actually complete their own departure file, much like the file I did 25 years ago and I've maintained and updated ever since. Once you've done that work, it's easy to keep um, up to date. So we did the workshop and set them on a little task to complete their planning over a 90-day period, and at the end of it, you know, we want a sustainable operation out of this, can't do it for free. Uh, we tested them and said, well, how much would you pay for it? And we got a response anywhere between $50 and $2,500, which is what, based on the fees that lawyers might charge to do all this work, like to do your will, your uh, enduring power of guardianship, enduring power of attorney and other such documents. The departure file is way more than that. It includes a funeral plan or your will and estate planning, everything. Everything you need to know or do to wind up in a state and help people with their health decisions and stuff like that is in there. So I'm working with Social Ventures Australia at the moment to develop a business case with the hope we can find a way to make it sustainable, whether that's grant money, philanthropy, certainly partnerships. The idea is that we would train people like myself to be advanced care planning educators and actually support people to do this work. Clearly, we're not professional, like in the sense of legal or health advice. You would need lawyers and doctors, and we would be absolutely pointing you in that direction to make sure this reflects your own values, beliefs, treatment options, preferences, all that sort of thing. And then the important thing is once you've actually had the discussions, worked all of that stuff out, that you share it with the people who need to have that information, including family, have the conversations, all those sort of things. So really, um, unless we get some good support, funding, a way to make it sustainable, it may or may not get up. And then in terms of... Uh, and there's certainly an appetite for it out there. It's absolutely recognised across the sector that there is this knowing, doing that. People know they need to do this, but they're not doing it. So it's going to require behaviour change. And that starts with getting people comfortable with having the conversations. And that's why the Perth Death Cafe and other cafes like it are so important, because at least it's a place for people to come to in the first instance. The other, in terms of my personal journey I already said I've got a completed departure file and I find it really easy to maintain I've done the same for my husband with 
uh, living with younger onset dementia, it's really important that we have those discussions because obviously his cognitive capacity is declining with time. And there's a time where I'm going to have to make all those decisions. And it's interesting, Tony, because he said, well, really, what does it matter? Like, if I don't know and all of those things and I really don't care, you can go ahead and do it all and who cares? And I said, well, I do, because how will I know what decisions to make for you? I, you know, you, and a simple one, and I, and I really teased him with this. I said, okay, so in the event that, you know, you do die and I'm having to now choose what you're going to be clothed in and, you know, whether you're buried or cremated, and I did this on purpose, I kind of baited him in a way. I said, I'm going to bury you naked. And he went, no, no, that's not going to work. That is not going to work. I want to be cremated and I want to be in my hiking boots, my boxes, and in my sleeping bag. And that just brought up a beautiful picture for me and I thought, perfect. And then that actually enabled us to have a deeper conversation. And with his permission, I recorded that because that may be the only way, you know, that I can actually have get that information together. He certainly his handwriting um, and capacity and things like that have changed. And not only that, what I've discovered too, Tony, this is really concerning for me. I never thought I'd I'd be in this situation. But I'm finding more and more with professionals, doctors, lawyers, we went, for example, to the public trustee to do our wills because I thought let's protect ourselves, I'll get it done through a service so that, you know, I can never be uh, accused of coercion or I'm in it for my own benefit or whatever, right? So it was to protect both myself and Michael. Well, immediately I disclosed that Michael had dementia. Suddenly he, we had to be split up. We could no longer do it together. He was allocated a female lawyer and I was allocated a male paralegal. And to me, that spoke volumes. And we were so anxious. And honestly, it was the worst experience. I think I just wasn't ready or prepared for that. Luckily, our wills did mirror each other because guess what? We had had the conversations, fortunately. Mm. So it worked. But the very thing that I was trying to avoid was actually implicated in that process. And I, to this day, have never gotten over that. It was just absolutely um, so disempowering, so disheartening, and so anxiety-provoking. It was awful. Vicky, thanks for sharing that. And you really have covered an area today that a lot of us do try to avoid or are just not comfortable approaching you have put it in a way that's very plain and very obvious and very logical. And I'm sure our listeners on Max's Island would uh, be very pleased to to know that there are options for them. And and you mentioned a word earlier on, and that's choice. Having your own choice of how you wish to die and what happens after your death. So thanks for sharing with us, not only educating all of us on the island, but also sharing your personal story. And maybe you'd like to just give a little plug for your death cafes. Oh, thank you. Well, um, it's a Facebook page, the Perth Death Cafe. You can just do a search for that. And the next one, I'm actually hosting one coming up 
on Friday the 28th of May at, from 4.30 to 6pm at the Bodhi Tree Bookstore. And this time, actually, um, Margaret Seeley, who's a grief and bereavement counsellor, is going to be co-convening. She's very keen to join me and um, help out with it. So we've already got, you know, we'll probably have about 20 to 30 people for that one. And that's absolutely enough to, um, more than enough to have a really good conversation and allow people a chance to talk. When we get numbers like that, we break them up into groups of around eight people so that people do get um, a good chance to have a, to have a say and share what's going on for them in that space. Thanks, Vicky, for being on the island. I'm sure our listeners have got a far better idea of what they need to do to plan their future. So thanks very much. Thanks, Tony. It's been an absolute pleasure. We spoke on the bus on the way home from work. He was lost in the details of life. Each day was a blur, oh work and no play, and how, how it had turned out this way. He told me his plan, a short-term escape, five weeks on the bibbling track. Go it alone, no one to blame if he finished or fell by the way. Phone and nothing.